Welcome to the Return to the Forgotten Path podcast. Your host today is Laverne Cox, and every week a friend will join me on this journey to a forgotten pathway that leads to rest and restoration. This podcast is a weekly Bible study of this week's Torah portion, or Parsha. It is a weekly reading um, study according to the Jewish annual Torah cycle, and every week we will have an in-depth Bible study filled with both historical and cultural viewpoints as it pertains to the return to the forgotten pathway that is increasingly happening all around the world. We will share our opinions, our review of our studies from this week's Torah, which is also known as the Pentateuch of the first five books of the Bible, as well as our study of the Half Torah and the Brit Hadashah or the New Testament or Renewed Covenant readings. Why are we doing this? Why return to a forgotten path? Return which in Hebrew means shavu, is um, an, a call or a beckoning um, to the forgotten path, which is also known as the, the way or the old path. Jeremiah 6.16 puts it this way. This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. In Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2 through 5, It is also spoken of in this way. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Many people will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. This is obviously referencing the Messianic era, but there are additional references to this continuously throughout the scriptures. For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 7, it says, remember the days of old and consider the years of many generations. Ask thy father and he will show thee by elders and they will tell thee. Um, Jeremiah 7 verse 23 puts it as well like says, but this thing commanded I them saying, obey my voice and I will be your God and you shall be my people and walk ye in all the ways that I have commanded you that it may be well unto you. And again, Isaiah chapter 30 verse 21 says, and thy ears shall hear a word behind thee saying, this is the way walk ye in it and when you turn to the right hand and when you turn to the left isn't that awesome you know the lord himself his voice his spirit his shekinah his glory is calling us to return to this pathway this week's torah portion is shemot names it is found in exodus chapter 1 verse 1 through Exodus chapter 6, verse 1. Our half Torah portion is found in Isaiah chapter 27, verses 6 through chapter 28, verse 13, as well as chapter 29, verses 22 through 23. Our Brit is found in Acts chapter 7, verses 17 through 35, and 1 Corinthians 14, verses 18 through 25. Exodus chapter 1. 
These are the names of the sons of Israel who came into Egypt with Yaakov. Each man came with his household, Reuven, Shimeon, Levi, Yehuda, Issachar, Yitzhavulam, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All told, there were 70 descendants of Yaakov. Yosef was already in Egypt. Yosef died, as did all his brothers in all that generation. The descendants of Israel were fruitful, increased abundantly, multiplied, and grew very powerful. The land became filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt. He knew nothing about Yosef, but said to his people, Look, the descendants of Israel have become a people too numerous and powerful for us. Come, let us use wisdom in dealing with them. Otherwise, they'll continue to multiply, and in the event of war, they might ally themselves with our enemies, fight against us, and leave the land altogether. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built for Pharaoh the stored cities of Pitom and Ramesses. But the more the Egyptians oppressed them, the more they multiplied and expanded until the Egyptians came to dread the people of Israel and worked them relentlessly, making their lives bitter with hard labor, digging clay, making bricks, all kinds of field work, and in all this toil they were shown no mercy. Moreover, the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was called Shifra and the other Puah. When you attend the Hebrew women and see them giving birth, he said, if it is a boy, kill him, but if it's a girl, let her live. However, the midwives were God-fearing women, so they didn't do as the king of Egypt ordered, but let the boys live. The king of Egypt summoned the midwives and demanded of them, why have you done this? And let the boys live. The midwives answered Pharaoh, it is because the Hebrew women aren't like the Egyptian women. They go into labor and give birth before the midwife arrives. Therefore, God prospered the midwives and the people continue to multiply and grow very powerful. Indeed, because the midwives feared God, he made them founders of families. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every boy that is born, throw in the river, but let all the girls live. A man from the family, chapter 2, a man from the family took up, of Levi took a woman, also descended from Levi as his wife, when she conceived and had a son upon seeing what a fine child he was. She decided she hid him for three months when she could no longer hide him. She took a papyrus basket, coated it with clay and tar, and put the child in it and placed it among the reeds of the river bank. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe in the river, while her maids and attendants walking alongside, spotting the basket among the reeds, she sent her slave girl to go get it. She opened it and looked inside, and there in front of her was a crying baby boy. Moved with pity, she said, this must be one of the Hebrews' children. At this point, his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, would you like me to go and find one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Pharaoh's daughter answered, yes, go. So the girl went and called the baby's own mother. Pharaoh's daughter told her, take this child away, nurse it for me, and I will pay for, pay you for it, for doing it. So the woman took the child and nursed it. Then when the child had grown some, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and she began to raise him as her son. She called him Moshe.
pulled out, explaining because I pulled him out of the water. And this begins the Torah portion for this week. This week's Torah portion, um, Shemot, is done a little differently than in our prior weeks. This week, I am the only voice that you will hear during this Torah Midrash um, and analysis. And it's really not due to um, anything besides life challenges coming up um, and taking my uh, originally planned um, guest away from joining us today. However, I do see this as opportune and not a, a surprise to the Lord. So let's begin by reviewing Shemot. So in this Torah portion that takes the name, first of all, of the book that we are currently reading, the book in English is Exodus, but in Hebrew, it's called Shemot. And just like our Torah portions from week to week are generally called by the initial first words of the Torah portion, so too is it's so with the books. We have just completed what we call in English Genesis. And now we are now entering, and Genesis in Hebrew is actually um, Bereshit, which is in the beginning or the beginning. Um, and now we are entering into Exodus in English, but is he in Hebrew, Shemot, the names. So, so far we have begun a sentence or a journey then of in the beginning names. And we're going to begin our understanding of this week's Torah portion, Shemot, in understanding the names of who uh, of the sons of Israel and what they were called to. It seems that in our first portion, we learn that the sons of Israel by name were now inhabitants within in Egypt and they and their offspring were becoming mighty and plentiful, very fruitful, growing abundant. And the, the Pharaoh, the king at that time that did not know Yosef, began to grow concerned of their size and their power that would be aligned with this strength of this new uh, group, this new family group within the land of Egypt. And as a result of desiring to ensure their success, the Pharaoh, king of Egypt, then decides that he's going to place bitter um, and stressful conditions upon the people of Israel, first beginning with enslavement, hard oppressive work, and then finally the uh, requirement to kill firstborn children. And we see that their the plan um, to do this was included the complicit uh, requirements of midwives. Uh, they specifically were um, in complete Jewish Bible referred to as the Hebrew midwives. Um, not necessarily um, clear as to whether they are of uh, Egyptian or uh, Israelite or origin, but these midwives, Shifra and Puah, are commanded that they must kill the first or kill all boys, but keep girls alive. Interesting. Um, and it's for the focus of how it was commanded, it says that what the king of Egypt had summoned 
was that in doing so, that this would reduce the numbers, but maintain the wealth. And so it's, it seems to me that the midwives, Shifra and Pua, hearing this, understood that it was Hashem, the God, their God, who had prospered them and prospered the children of Israel and allowed them to be fruitful. And they feared Hashem, is what the scripture says, and that they decided that they were going to protect the firstborn and to ensure that they did not follow through with the command and demands that were summoned of them. Some of the things that I think are interesting about just the first chapter of our Torah portion is the line um, in verse eight that says, and now there arose a new king in Egypt. He knew nothing about Yosef, but said to his people, look, the descendants of Israel have become a people. In other words, here, a nation, uh, not just a group any longer, and too numerous and too powerful for us. And so um, let us use our wisdom in dealing with them. And I'm just going to stick a pin there because every aspect of what we hear in Shemot regarding the generations, these names of Israel, it seems is this, the sound of Egypt or the voice of their Pharaoh speaking against exactly what he feared here, which is the, the numerous numbers and the power of the people. And the plan that he initiates basically is not being fulfilled in in what he had commanded or summoned. And one of the reasons I bring this up is because part of my desire to grow in Torah study is also learning history. And part of the, the understanding of history is that um, some people in the past had inferred that the children of Israel at this period of time were living in the Ramesses, the second um, period of Egyptian history. However, there is current archaeology and current um, study that has shown that that is not actually the case. Where they are um, currently, um, this is taking place, is actually under a foreign kingdom or foreign king or foreign pharaoh. It seems that this new king that has arisen is not Egyptian in origin. And that is the reason why he knows nothing about Yosef. I'm going to stick up in there because from my perspective, this becomes very prevalent as we continue to read the book of Shemot. And so as we see in the Egyptian or the Hebrew midwives not uh, obeying the command of the Pharaoh, it is, it's, two, it's twofold. Yes, they do respect, they do honor the God of the Israelites. And secondly, it also can be coming from a place where he's foreign. And I'll read why I'm inferring this. It says, then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. And I, it is very clear to me that this, the people that we see and are uncovering during our story here, and, and our reading of the text is a foreign body that have come into rule over the Egyptians. So not only are they um, seen as, yes, Pharaoh is still seen as a god, he is still revered, but his people are not of the same ori original branch that the, even the Egyptians of that era were 
they're familiar with, but not necessarily uh, directly tied to. And so he says to his own people, and this is what I thought was interesting, every boy, every boy that is born, throw it in the river, but let the girls live. So after the command is given to the midwives and they disobey in a way that he cannot understand, he then still gives this command that the boys must be thrown into the Nile. And from there, we begin with what takes place in the home of a certain Levi woman who sees that she is conceived and she has born a son. And we now learn that his, this son is none other than Moses in English, but Moshe in Hebrew. And Moshe is found by Pharaoh's daughter and Pharaoh's daughter names him because of the fact that she pulled him out of the water. And in the pulling out of the water, coming out of the water, she has saying Moshe drawn, drawn out. But it seems that Moshe in the next verse becomes a different aspect of a drawn out uh, individual. And I, I put a perspective there primarily from the, the scriptures that says that we are a called out people, a chosen. So in Pharaoh's daughter naming Moses, he is specifically now becoming a selective, a selected out of all the boys that may have been thrown into the Nile, he's being a drawn out, a selected uh, leader. And it's very important for us to recognize that in two, as Moshe is drawn out, so too is Israel. So too in are we in the body of Messiah. So too are we as uh, co-heirs with Israel. We are drawn out from the world to maintain his uh, set position, set rule, and to be the light in this world and to be fulfilling of the call of being drawn out. And so we continue to read that it says that one day when Moshe was a grown man, he went out to visit his kinsmen and he watched them struggling and forced under forced labor. And he saw an Egyptian strike a Hebrew, one of his kinsmen again. And he looked this way and that. And when he saw that no one was around, he killed the Egyptian and hid his body in the sand. And the next day he went out and saw two Hebrew men fighting with each other. To the one in the wrong, he said, why are you hitting your companion? And he retorted, who appointed you ruler and judge over us? Do you intend to kill me the way you killed the Egyptian? Okay, so let's stop there. And the issue that we have at hand is this word called kinsman in this reading and the perspective of the the, the Israelite that is responding to him who appointed you a judge over us, a ruler and a judge over us. And so the rabbis state that in their understanding, Moses, Moshe, was all, was a leader. He was appointed by Pharaoh, not only groomed in his, his mother's house to and being nursed by him when he was a child, but he, was un, he understood by the fact that he was a circumcised uh, Israelite, that he was of Israelite descent. He was of these specific Hebrew descended people. And so he, from his perspective, recognized his bloodline connection to the plight of the people. And when he saw the affliction of his people, he wanted to do something. 
And when the weight of the abuse then, or the forced labor had become so oppressive, he struck out. And in so doing, what he and actually is doing, he is taking position, but in the wrong uh, appointment and in the wrong assignment. And so when the Israelite says to Moshe, who appointed you, this is going to be connected to the what happens in our preceding chapters. This specific question is, who appointed you ruler and judge over us? And what Moshe was trying to do was fulfill a call for being drawn out as his name is uh, connected to his purpose. But again, he is seeking to fulfill it in a way that is not according to the appointment. So when he hears this from the the Israelites, um, specifically the word says Moshe became frightened. Clearly he thought the matter had become known that he had killed the Egyptian. And when Pharaoh would hear of it, he would try to put Moshe to death. But Moshe fled from Pharaoh to live in the land of Midian. So it is now at this point that our story turns to now the fleeing, drawn out chosen person, chosen one, moving into uh, the land of his separation, number one, and secondly, um, a, a place where of protection, because he felt that in Midian he would not be um, found or uh, or um, able to be connected to, or uh, Pharaoh could not reach him. And so this is a land of uh, of protection for Moshe, and it, it leans one to remember that when Israelite come into the land, they also declare these certain cities for a season until a judge and a judgment can be given on the person that is in the cities of refuge. And that's the, the words I was looking for, the city of refuge. So Midian becomes to Moshe a city of refuge. It's not clear as to whether or not he knowingly runs towards Midian as a city of refuge, but it is clear that that is what he found. Because in the next sentence, it states that when he was one day sitting by a well, seven daughters of the priests of Midian came to draw water and they filled the troughs to water their father's sheep. And when the shepherd came and tried to draw them away, Moshe got up, defended them, and he watered their sheep. Again, we see a picture of what happened multiple times in the Torah with this well, and the watering of sheep. We see it with Isaac. We see it with um, Abraham's servant going to asking a stranger to water his camels. He's seeking kindness um, at that time. We see this again in the story of Yaakov. And Yaakov sees a daughter coming to water, uh, or to obtain water from the well. And he then um, removes the stone for the, her. Again, we see, again, Moshe, again, at this well, which mirrors back to what we read up before in Bereshit, he is at a well and he sees shepherds, a shepherdess, 
and the shepherds are trying to drive away the shepherdess. But Moshe stands up, defends them, and then he watches their sheep. And so when their father comes, his father is called Ruel here. Remember the name, Ruel. How come your back so soon today? And they answered an Egyptian, rescued us from the shepherds. More than that, he drew water for us and watered the sheep. He asked his daughters, where is he? Why did you leave the man there? Invite him to have something to eat, period. Remember, every single time this uh, meeting at the well happens, there is an act of kindness that is shown that precedes an offer and an invitation to broader connection and relationship. And I, I think it's very important for us as believers to kind of challenge our own faith and our walk to determine whether or not we are acting in our moments of meetings at Wells in the spirit of kindness and love for someone else's need to fulfill that need so that a broader connection and relationship can be formed. For me, when I read this this season, I recognize that I have not been operating in this for strangers as often as I ought to and have corrected my behavior to move forward and ensure that as I walk out the commands of God in regards to my own relationships with my own family, that I become concerned and empathetic about the concerns of someone else when those meetings at wells and strangers um, as the scripture says, you know, sometimes we entertain strangers unaware. Sometimes those strangers unaware are angels themselves, or angels unaware, excuse me. And so in entertaining a stranger, we may be, alas, opening a door for Hashem to act on our behalf. And so this is what transpired here in the conversations with Moshe and the Egyptian. So I, as the story goes, and many of you do know, his fa the father named Ruel um, is also an, a name or a title then for Jethro. And Jethro or Yitro in Hebrew is the father-in-law of Moses' soon-to-be wife. And his wife that he gives in marriage is Zipporah. So not only does um, Moses, like his forefathers, meet his um, intended to be his bride, as a result of a, a meeting at a well, we see that the bride Zipporah becomes um, married to him and his father-in-law, Yitro, takes him in. Now, who else, where else in the scriptures do we see this happening before? And if you thought quite quickly as a good student and scholar, you have connected that this happened with Yaakov. Lavan, his uncle, takes Yaakov in and Yaakov comes to rear the, the sheep, the flock of Lavan or Laban. And so this too is where the Lord begins to bless Lavan as a result of Yaakov's um, stewardship, his time with him. And it says, so too happens with Yitro. For it says in verse um, three, um, that chapter three, rather. Now Moshe was tending the sheep of Yitro's father-in-law, the priest of Midian, leading the flock to the far side of the desert. And he came to the Mount of God, the mountain of God at Horeb. 
And so the angel of Adonai appears to him in a fire blazing from the middle of a bush. And he looked and saw, although the bush was flaming with fire, the bush was not being burnt up. And I'm sticking a pin there and pausing. Here is a moment for us to acknowledge that we are reviewing an intro to a, a very intimate conversation. And I, I think it's very intimate because what is happening from the perspective of the outward reader is amazing. This is, um, even to Moshe, he's seeing something that's unnatural, um, uh, unnatural or uncommon. This is not the way it ought to be. And so I need for us to use our, uh, leave our natural mind for a second and consider spiritual things being spiritually discerned. It says in verse two that the angel of Adonai appeared to him. Um, one of the challenges of reading the Torah from a person who grew up in Christianity, the understanding of who the angel of Adonai or the angel of the Lord is from the perspective of Christianity is an incarnation of Yeshua. Um, this is literally the perspective of Christianity, that this angel of the Lord is every time he shows up and the reason that you don't see him again in uh, Christian um, theology in the New Testament is because the manifestation of the, the Lord himself in the, the embodiment of Yeshua in the flesh doesn't require it. He can speak for himself then. And it seems that from a Jewish perspective, it's not exactly the same. Yes, he truly is speaking as if the angel is it's himself Adonai, but from the a perspective where Adonai is giving the angel authority to speak in his name. And so not to say that one perspective is more right than the other, but I do see um, instances where the angel of Adonai um, comes again in the book of Revelation and does say, I am that I am, and, and does use the... Uh, what we soon come to learn in chapter three and four, the name of God, um, the name that he, he then shares with Moshe here um, in talking with John. So the angel of Adonai from the, the rabbinic, or you could say the orthodox perspective as the, uh, the angel that speaks with the voice, with the authority of the Lord, seems to be more accurate to me than solely Yeshua, the manifestation of Yeshua on earth. Now, in effect, because he has the ability to not only speak, but also to act in many portions, I think it, there is definitely more depth and growth for both myself and all um, readers and and study students within the scriptures to learn. So I'm going to leave that as a, a, a pin for future growth. But I want you to understand every time you see the angel of Adonai, consider that God has sent a representation of himself to the earth, not necessarily him himself leaving the the, the the place of his throne, but a representation. And the representation is to fulfill a specific act. And in this beginning of, of Shemot, uh, 
3, chapter 3, we see that it is to have a conversation, specifically a commanding conversation with um, uh, Moshe. And so here we continue. Moshe said, um, when he sees this burning fly, fire and the bush not being consumed, Moshe said, I'm going to go over and see this amazing sight and find out why the bush isn't being burnt up. When Adonai saw that he had gone over to see, God called to him from the middle of the bush. I'm going to stop there. So there's a lot to uncover, unpack, but I think to myself, why is it mentioned? Why is it said that Moshe said within himself, obviously, I'm going to see? And I'll explain from my perspective what I perceive here. God is seeking a willingness, a willingness to question, a willingness to discover. He is not seeking a hardened position and a hardened heart and a stubborn head. And it is in the fact that Moshe here is you can say curious or willing to discover what is behind this, that Adonai says, aha, he's ready. So Adonai says, I'm going to call him. And he calls him Moshe, Moshe. I think it's like going again with the scriptures. Whenever the Lord says something twice, it's, it's, a, it's a command more so than, or an absolute rather, than it is a question. For in the New Testament, we hear Yeshua echoing, verily, verily, I say unto you. It's like an absolute, no question about it. We hear also the calling again in, or the echoing of a similar pattern in the calling of uh, the servant um, Samuel. Uh, you know, Samuel was called uh, as he was in the household of Eli. And he wasn't, he was so young in age and he was not learned and he wasn't clear as to what was going on. And when Samuel was called, he kept running to Eli until Eli instructed him that when he heard it again, that he ought to answer. But we see that in the case of Moshe, Moshe is learned. In other words, he's trained, he's aware enough that when he hears Moshe, Moshe, he answers Heneni. Here I am. And so we continue with the conversation that is going to transpire here. And for those in our, that grew up in a Christian understanding and we sang these songs and we're standing on holy ground, we see that as he answers, he's seeking to approach. But the Lord commands him, don't come any closer. Take your sandals off because the place where you are standing is holy ground. In other words, it's not a physical uh, approaching. It is in itself a spiritual one or a, a connection with the Holy One of Israel, best be he. Um, and he recognizes that Moshe needs to separate the unclean things from himself to continue in connecting or uh, developing this relationship and maintaining this conversation. So the separation requirement is to remove the sandals from his feet, to um, prepare himself then for what is to continue and transpire. And he, uh, the scriptures begin with the conversation of the Lord speaking first. And it says, I am, I am the Lord, your God, the God of your father. And he continued the God of Avram, the God of Isaac, the God of Yaakov. 
Yaakov and Moshe covered his face because he was afraid to look upon on, on God or Hashem. And Adonai said, I have seen my people being oppressed in Egypt and heard their cry for release from their slave masters because I have because I know their pain. I have come down to rescue them from the Egyptians and to bring them out of that country to a good and spacious land, a land with milk, with flowing with milk and honey, the place of the Kinani, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzi, the Hivi, the and the Uvasi. So I, he continues, I, I, yes, the cry of the people of Israel have come up to me and I have seen how terribly the Egyptians oppressed them. And therefore now come and I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may lead my people, the descendants of Israel, out of Egypt. So this is a call. And truthfully, um, in this call, there is specific instructions. And it's first of all begins with the identification of who I am, who the Lord God is. Not I am Laverne, but I am who he is. And it's relates it to what is aware, what Moshe is aware of, what he is um, commonly understanding as to who the true creator is, the true Lord. And the the connection to his forefathers of Abraham, the, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, and the connection to who that represents in Moses causes him now not only to you know to do what was commanded but to also hide himself to hide his face because he feared the lord his god um and so what i find is interesting what curiosity brings you to oftentimes it can sometimes be overwhelming or it can be so awesome that it is out of respect we recognize that we need to honor it with a little separation and so the separation that Moshe provides in um, hiding his face is not because he was solely afraid. I'm certain that there was a terror. However, there must have been a an awe that the Lord himself, the, the God of my fathers, would come, would speak, would reside then, even be in my presence in whatever form. He chose, he still chose, and he chose to reside with me. And so the respect and awe that uh, Moshe reveres to the Lord is one where I believe as children of the Most High, as called out ones in this era, we too should remember um, the honor and respect that is due. If we truly honor the, the God of Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, or the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as we know in English, we too should remember the respect and the awe and the tremendous honor that our forefathers also had in coming into connection uh, and relationship then with him. And so we continue with this, the, the call. This is the beginning of a call. Um, to Moshe. And Moshe's reply is not unlike many of us. I'm, I, I am certain that this is the pattern that the Lord has not, has heard multiple times um, throughout history. Moshe says, who am I? You ask the question um, that I should go to Pharaoh and lead the people of Israel out of Egypt. Um, 
And the Lord replies, I surely will be with you. Your sign that I have sent you and will be with you, um, that when you have led the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. And this is important. Remember that the sign that is going to fulfill the assurance then that I am calling you, that you will do this and you will fulfill this. You are going to bring the people to worship God on this mountain because this is going to come up often in the preceding, um, in the proceeding uh, chapters. So Moshe says to God, look, when I appear before the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your ancestors, the God of your fathers, remember, has sent me to you. They're going to ask me, what is his name? That and what am I to tell them? The question bears an answer. So why is it that the people of Israel would ask, what is the name of the God of our ancestors? Uh, Fair question. And so one that begs an answer, but I'm going to move on and I'm going to give you the answer in a strange way. But think about it from your perspective. Why would they ask, what is the name of the God of your ancestors? Okay. And so God says to Moshe, and added, here is what to say to the people of Israel. Ie has sent me to you. God said further to Moshe, say this to the people of Israel. The God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Avram, the God of Yitzhak, the God of Yaakov has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is how I am to be remembered generation after generation. I'm going to stick a pen, and that's end at verse 15. So go back and read this, because I want you to recognize that sometimes in our recollection of what transpires here, that there may be some additional details that we need to take note of. And so I need you to recognize that when the people ask, what is his name? The Lord not only gives one name, he gives two. Now, so it is normally or commonly uh, translated that the Eye, Asher Eye, is I am that I am. What type of response is that? And so the question in English oftentimes is God is declaring that he, he is the present and continuous tense of the verb to be. And he is all that is. So that is the reason that it is um, referred to as his name. He is. He is. And there is yet still a deeper connection that I feel that sometimes we forget. And I believe in recognizing in the fact that he responds to um, again and, and elaborates further. And here is what to say to the people of Israel. Iye has sent me. So Iye um, in Hebrew, I am a will. Asher Iye, be be what? And it says, all right, I am. A-A, again, I am or will be. So again, he says, A-A, I will be. I am. So I will be is the manifestation of what comes at the other side or the direction to which the Lord seeks to pursue. In other words, if the Lord himself designed or desired X, then X is what 
the Lord will become. And in the fact that he shares two names, and I say X because I don't want to um, put any uh, characterization or position on the direction of what the Lord desires. So the I will is what he has given them. And the I will will fulfill what the I will has commanded. And so the command that the I will has given is the command to free, to lead the people out of Israel, as stated in verse 11. I am, I will, I willed it. And so the I will has sent me to you. And he said, even further, say to them that I am now what we've learned in the past um, as we've been in reading the Torah, that the Adonai, Adonai, the God of your fathers. And the Adonai in our English Bibles are often translated as Lord, but that represents the Tetragrammaton, which is the yud He vav He. And this name is not the name that is known by the fathers, but this is the God of the fathers, the God of Abraham, Abraham, the God of Yitzhak, Isaac, and the God of Yaakov, Jacob. And so he says, tell them he has sent me to you, and this is my name forever. So not only does he say that the characterization of who I am, the name, a name of who I am is I will, I will be. I too am the Adonai. And by continuing, he says, go further, go gather the leaders of all Israel and say to them, Adonai, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Yitzhak and Isaac, um, Yitzhak and Yaakov, excuse me, has appeared to me and said, I have been paying close attention to you and have seen what has been being done to you in Egypt. And I have said, I will lead you out of misery of Egypt to the land of Kinnanai, Hitti, Emory, Perizzi, Hevi, and Uvasi, to a land flowing with milk and honey. Um, they will heed what you say, then you will come, you and the leaders of Israel, before the king of Egypt, and you will tell him, Adonai, the God of Hebrews, has met with us. Now, please let us go three days' journey into the desert so that we can sacrifice to Adonai, our God. <clears throat> I know that the king of Egypt will not let you leave unless he is forced to do so. But I will reach out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders that I will do there. After that, he will let you go. Moreover, I will make the Egyptians so well disposed towards his peop- this people that when you go, you won't go empty-handed. Rather, all the women will ask their neighbors and house guests for silver and gold, jewelry and clothing with which you will dress your own sons and daughters. In this way, you will plunder the Egyptians. So, some things that I found that stuck out in the English to me, besides the the fact that he's commanding exactly, his command also has a a plan. It's that he says, you are to say this, not to the uh, B'nai Israel, the children of Israel, but specifically he says, go gather the leaders of Israel, um, the fathers then, the heads of family, and say to them, and that what he was to go before, the king of Egypt, that he was to carry them, they they were to go with him. And it says, however, that in my recollection and and reading, uh, do the leaders of Israel go uh, with Moshe when he goes before the king of Egypt? Not as far as I can recall, but let's continue to read. 
Moreover, it says, um, I will make the Egyptians so well disposed towards this people. I will, moreover, I will make the Egyptians so well disposed towards this people. What people are is the Lord referring to? Of course, of course. Think of it. It's Israel. The people of Israel, the children of Israel, it would be so well disposed towards the, the children of Israel that when you go, you won't go up empty-handed. Rather, all the women will ask their neighbors and house guests for um, gold and silver to dress your sons and daughters. And so we continue to read that as Moshe um, receives this command, you would think that Moshe would go and fulfill it. But it seems that Moshe is pondering the command. And it's not uncommon. Again, I believe this is common with mankind. But I believe if you know who God is, if you revere and you honor, then we should re respect the fact that he's commanded, <laughs> and especially with the verily verilies, um, it's an absolute. And it's not something that is to be changed. It will stand. And so Moshe replies, um, this is what Moshe replies in chapter four. I'm certain that they won't believe me and they won't listen to what I say because they'll say Adonai did not appear to you. So Adonai prepares him with, with what should help him to preserve the, his, I would say, the reputation of the Lord as Moses is his representative to the people. So it is, he's preparing him to be the representative, but it is also, he's preparing him to be respected as a representative of the Lord. And so chapter two, uh, chapter four continues with verse two saying, Adonai answers him and says, what is in your hand? And he says, take the staff, throw it on the ground and throw it, and he threw it on the ground and it turns into a sake. And Moshe recoiled from it. But then Adonai said to Moshe, put your hand out, take it by the tail. And he reached out with his hand and took hold of it. And it began, it became a staff in his hand. And this is so that they will believe that Adonai, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Yitzhak, the God of Yaakov has appeared to you. Okay, question. What type of sign is this? Why is the staff itself being thrown down and being turned into a serpent something for by which the people would believe? Consider it. For the Moa, I'm reading from verse 6, Adonai said to him, now put your hand inside your coat. And he put his hand in his coat, and when he took it out, his hand was leprous as white as snow. Then God said, now put your hand back in your coat. And he put his hand back in his coat, and when he took it out, it was as healthy as the rest of his body. If they won't believe you or heed the evidence of the first sign, they will be convinced by the second. But if they aren't persuaded even by both of these signs and still won't listen to what you say, then take some water from the river, pour it on the ground, and the water you take from the river will turn into blood. Okay, so now there is now three signs by which to prove to the children of Israel that Moshe is a representative of God. The first is the staff being turned into a serpent. The second is the hand uh, being hidden and revealed as leprous and the hand being uh, hidden again and being revealed as healed. And then the third is this sign of the water from the, the river being poured to the ground and the water from the river turning into blood on the dry land.
interesting perspectives. And the rabbis do have a, a meaning as to what this is. Before we answer the questions as what are the three signs, let's ask some questions. I think questions tend to help us to grow and to see how far we've grown. Now we see that these are three signs. Now, the sign of blood can be said to be an ultimate proof of God's directive. So why does the sign of blood come after the signs of the serpent and leprosy? Why not just instruct Moses to perform the blood sign first? The three signs would then not be necessary, right? Um, why were these three even selected? Why does God give Moses signs easily duplicated by the magicians? And you will see in the following Torah portion that this is the case. And what is meant by the voice of each sign? In both cases, the transformation of a staff into a serpent and Nile water into blood uh, does not take place until both objects reach the ground. Hmm. As it says, he threw it to the ground and it became a serpent and it will be blood on dry land. What is the reason for this miracle at a distance? And what do the two first signs return to the original objects? What need does this serve? And why is Moses requested to conceal his hand in order to become leprous? Couldn't God certainly make him leprous without concealing it? In contrast to the sign of blood where God tells Moses what will happen to the Nile's waters before the signs performed, why does God not tell Moses what will happen to the staff or his hand before those miracles? Good question. And what will the Jews learn when they hear Moses referring to God as the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? All very good questions. Ten very good questions. And the ten questions which I got from misora.org. Uh, so if you want to further do some study there, please do. What I found in really doing that quick review is that this can be summarized in the three signs of the three generations. As it is stated that at this time of Moshe, that there had only been a total of 210 years that had elapsed since Yaakov and his family had arrived in Egypt. And according to the promise that God had originally given, a promise to Abraham, the Midrash um, from Moshe Rabbeinu, um, uh, excuse me, the Midrash states that Moshe Rabbeinu should not have been in the generation for the, the return because the 400 years had not um, been completed. So when he was sent to the children of Israel, you will be redeemed this month, they replied, um, how can you redeem? How can you be redeemed? Um, the 400 years have not um, passed. And this is found in the Pesikta Rabasi uh, 15 verse 8. Uh, this is why Moshe thought that the signs to the house of Israel would be necessary. So the signs actually can also be um, symbolic of the three generations. This is now the third generation from the arrival of the people of Israel into the land of Egypt. 
as described in, I believe it's chapter uh, seven of Shemot or Exodus. This is also can be symbolic of another three signs. Um, and we're going to explain exactly what they are. In uh, Genesis, the sign, the first sign, which is the sign of the serpent, is hearkening to the, the serpent that we see in the Garden of Eden back in the Parsha Bereshit. Remember, this is the first Parsha as well of the book of Shemot. Interesting. Um, it is that serpent in the, the Garden of Eden who first introduces rebellion against God. So this serpent is a symbol of idolatry in itself. So the serpent of idolatry or the spirit of idolatry is the first sign. Then the leprous hand uh, it ha corresponds to sexual immorality. And we see this uh, response in the scriptures to leprosy as sexual immorality. Um, to another extent, they also call this the sin of Lashon Hora, um, sin of hatred, uh, brotherly hatred. And this leprosy on the hand um, can be referred to uh, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 3, verse 6 through 17, when it says the daughters of Zion are prodded and walk with outstretched necks and fluttering eyes, walking and floating as they go. With their feet, they spit poison and God will strike them with leprosy, the crown of their heads, the daughters of Zion. And the crowns of the daughters of the head of Zion. Um, interesting. So the this leprosy is a representation also of spiritual sin in the way of sexual immorality or uh, Lashon Hara, uh, object hatred for no reason, hatred against our brothers. Finally, the blood um, sign is the sign that corresponds to the sin of murder. As it is said um, in the Bible, let me just get the exact sign for you. The To the sign of um, blood is referred to when it, when referred to in the scriptures as bloodshed is referring to the spilling of blood and therefore the spilling of blood is a connection between the soul and the body being severed which results in of course in death is also spiritually also the connecting force between the physical and the spiritual between life and death and so the three signs have three extreme um, uh, correlations to sin. So murder uh, in the sign of blood, uh, in the sign of leprosy, to the sign of sexual um, I, uh, immorality and, idol um, and idolatry, this uh, abject hatred as well. And then the first sign, the sign of the serpent to idolatry instead. So we see that we can garner the meanings of the symbols. How can we explain the answers to the other questions, the order? Um, so the order and the way that they are done do have purpose. And I want to utilize the h.com article that um, gave me some connections to this. You can also find this as well um, throughout studies of the Rambam, as well as Rashi. It's very interesting. I definitely would like to encourage uh, any interested students to do further study than what I'm sharing here with you. But uh, in the h.com article that I'm reading, they all had subtle differences and the, the differences were purposeful.
and the fact that the the serpent um, in the first sign, the fact that the serpent was a done at a distance. This distance was done for a reason. As I stated before, the the sin of the serpent or the, the symbolic nature of the serpent is idolatry. Um, it was purposely done to show the transformation of a thing. Uh, without physical contact, you can definitely not say that Moses was uh, transforming it with his hand and he was not controlling it from that distance. So the throwing down was to show that this was not being done of Moses' own ability, but also this is the, the, the actions then of a true miracle or of God's response. Um, so when the serpent it is then picked up by the tail and it, it is then transformed um, back into a staff, this is also the revelation of God's conformity, the ability to transform uh, idolatry, to return it back to its original state. And so we see there's a purpose in it. And so when we move to the act of the leprosy, the act of the leprosy also could have been done from the question before where the hand would could have been transformed in the sight of everyone rather than being hidden and then being exposed. The act of the, the hiding and the ex, um, being exposed is likened to what immorality truly is. It is often a hidden sin until it becomes exposed. And it's like voracious in terms of a disease and it, it overtakes the entire being. But true to the nature of who God is, even that can be reconciled, can be restored. And the nature of the last, which is the sign of the source of life, blood, uh, when it is taken from water and it is then, which is the life-giving source, we cannot live but a short time without water and it's transformed into blood. This is the only sign that is not uh, returned to its, its original state. And it is for the importance of explaining the uh, stark contrast to the importance of this life-giving source and the importance of recognizing uh, the finality then of this um, state. It, it, is, it, is, it is a state that strikes one at its core as, as one's greatest fear, of course, death, but additionally, it created uh, an area for a uh, position where the Nile was the disputed uh, god of the Egyptians. Now this grandeur nature is in shown in stark contrast to the true life giver, the true God, um, which we come to realize is not our intellect, it's not our cultural understanding, but it is the creator of all things. And so God offers the person a chance to rise to a higher level in his mind, in his, his abilities, if he, in his connection to the true author of life. And with this simple performance, the man has the opportunity to exercise his thinking and to derive his truth concerning God's will and also the appointment of Moses as the representation of God for this moment. And so... And those three signs, we see that, you know, it should have been settled uh, and done. But we see that 
the next response from Moshe is one where, again, like us, like our human frailties, we're like, okay, we recognize that this must be done. We understand the importance of it. But he responds in not an acceptance of the absolute nature of the command. And he states, oh, Adonai, could you find somebody else in, in short? Could you find somebody else? I agree. Let it be done, but find somebody else. And this angers the, the Lord because at the at its core, we're challenging what God has commanded, first of all. And secondly, you know, in our own understanding, we don't realize the importance of the role that we individually and collectively play with one another. And so when uh, Moshe says to the Lord, you know, here's my reason for this. It's not that I'm I, I disagree with the command. It's that I'm a terrible speaker. He gives the reason for um, the challenge. I've always been, I'm no better now, even after you've spoken to your servant, my words are still slow of nature. Uh, this in one essence is a, a aspect of truth, one by which even the, you know, Rashi and the Rambam, uh, Rashi explains rather that this is likened to the the coals being placed on his lips that made him to speak a little bit slower in nature versus the, the Jeremiah experience where, uh, or the Isaiah experience, I be, no, Ezekiel, excuse me, the Ezekiel experience where the coals placed on his lips gives him the ability to speak. This, uh, in a Midrashic form, uh, made it him slow of speech. And so, this slowingness of speech, Adonai responds to as saying, who do you think gives a person a mouth? You know, who do you think makes a, 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 deaf, a deaf, a keen-sighted or a blind person? Isn't it I, Adonai? And in that way, Moshe realizes that, you know, I can't argue against the command, but I still don't want to go. And this angered God. And he says, don't you have a brother? Every question the Lord asks always has, you know, a conclusion in the statement in, of the question itself. Of course, he has a brother. He knows he has a brother. And he says, you know, I know that he's a good speaker. In fact, here he is now coming out to meet you and he'll be happy to see you. And you will speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and his teaching you both what to do. Solution, move on. <laughs> and we should say amen. Uh, and so it is that uh, as he was speaking, even so, uh, his brother, Moshe's brother, um, Aaron, was on his way to meet him. Moshe goes to his father, Yishro, his father-in-law, rather, and he begs to let him go to return to kinsmen um, within the land of Egypt. And Israel, of course, says, go in peace. And Adonai um, says to Moshe and Midian, go on back to Egypt because, Egypt because all the men who wanted to kill you are dead. Interesting. Think about that. So this is another Pharaoh. Think about that. Another Pharaoh has arisen. So it says, Adonai said to, or I said, the, the, the leaders, who, which one is it? Um, consider this. Adonai said to Moshe and Midian, go on back to Egypt because all the men who wanted to kill you are dead. So Meshi took his wife and his sons, put them on a donkey, and started out for Egypt. So in God providing the response and the, the resource for fulfilling what he had commanded, uh, Moshe obediently did not run like uh, 
are a, a prophet, um, Jonah, that runs in the opposite direction. He runs towards in fulfilling the command. And so as he goes, he's blessed by his father-in-law to fulfill what is what God commands. And then I find something interesting in um, what he says to the his father-in-law. And it says, or what Adonai has, then says to Moshe as he's leaving. Okay. So listen, it says, Adonai said to Moshe, when you get back to Egypt, you make sure that you do, be, you do before Pharaoh every one of the wonders I've enabled you to do. Nevertheless, I'm going to make him hard-hearted and he will refuse to let the people go. Then you are to tell Pharaoh, Adonai says, Israel is my firstborn. I have told you to let my son go in order to worship me, but you have refused to let him go. Well, then I will kill your firstborn son. This is the the tenth plague that is going to strike Egypt, but it is clear from uh, Moshe's uh, departure from Midian that this is going to happen. And so I think it'd be very interesting in the next few sentences that we read, as well as the next chapter in Parsha, as to how Moshe handles the responsibility of being this called out servant with this responsibility to not only lead his people out, but also to speak to the foreign um, king, the Egyptian king, which in Hebrew is Metraim, which unfortunately in our translations does not translate the way that it ought to. Yes, Egypt is a physical place, but Mitzrayim is also uh, the word meaning bondage. It is the place of bondage. And in this place of bondage, not only for the children of Israel, but also for the spiritual house of Israel, we too find ourselves with a, a, a a foreign lord, a foreign king that is ruling over us and has enslaved us under bitter and harsh conditions. And still true to the form, is God so concerned about the continuation of his people, the fulfillment of their call as the firstborn son, that he sends a deliverer, he sends someone to bring them out. He sends someone to set captives free. And so we see uh, in Moshe Rabbeinu, best be he, an example, a prototype, a type of Messiah. We see in his fulfillment of his calling out, being drawn out into this position of leadership, the Messiah and how he too will fulfill the calling out of the names of the children of Israel from the hands of bondage. And so as we continue to read, not only read what is happening from the perspective of a people, our people, our ancestors, because according to whether you be blood or you, according to the the seed of Abraham, or you are um, within Messiah, and as a result of being, you know, with Messiah, in Messiah, then becoming Abraham's seed and a joint heir, according to the promise, according to um, the writings of Paul, we also see here that there is a joint relationship in how the Lord is speaking to us in this modern day to prepare ourselves for the ultimate redemption. The, the glue that both 
Israel and the nations are are waiting for the return to the, the the true Torah, the 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 living Torah, the one that is accompanied with the tree of life, the one that gives life eternal, the one that restores us to our uh, correct place in the body of Messiah within the the land that He originally gave us in the beginning. And so we see as we read each and every line and each and every word, there is a specific spiritual assignment for the called out and for his children, the the ones being led, the ones that are being grown, the ones that are being matured as leaders within the house of Israel, as well as there is an assignment on the enemy. There is a set time for judgment and a set judgment that has already been ordained. And so as we continue to read, I pray that in our study, we will find ourselves as well as our assignment in Messiah and our assignment in this world to build up, to strengthen and to lead um, and maybe be quick to fulfill it as Moshe Rabbeinu was quick to fulfill the word of Adonai. When the plan is given, be quick to fulfill it and to walk it out. And this is my prayer, both for you and for your family members. May you be richly blessed. Amen, amen, amen. Um, as it is our custom, we will close um, every study with the Etz Kaim, or the prayer to return. In English, it is stated like this. It is a tree of life to those who take hold of it, and those who support it are praiseworthy. Its ways are ways of pleasantness, and all its paths are peace. Bring us back, Lord, to you, and we shall come. Renew our days as of old. For your listening pleasure, I have attached the Etzkaim. It is our hope that you will join us as well. Feel free to comment, like, or share with your friends and family. Shalom.